the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is The Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Happy Monday, friends, and welcome to The Jenna Ellis Show. As you know, the Biden administration has caused a financial crisis, and they have no clue how to fix it. So oil prices have skyrocketed, and when oil prices go up, not only do your expenses go up, but the cost of transportation and shipping spikes, leading the prices of goods to rise. And we're already seeing record inflation, and that's the last thing that we need. So if all of your money is tied up in stocks, bonds, and traditional markets, you may be vulnerable. Gold is one of the best ways to protect your retirement. No matter what happens, you own your own gold. It's real, it's physical, and it's always been valuable since the dawn of time. Legacy Precious Metals is the company that I trust for investing in gold. They can help you roll your retirement account into a gold-backed IRA where you still own your physical gold. They can also ship gold and precious metals safely and securely to your home. So call Legacy Precious Metals today at 866-528-1903 or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com. That's 866 866- 528-1903 or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com where you can download the free investor's guide. All right, so it is Monday, and as of the recording of this podcast, we have still not heard from the United States Supreme Court regarding their opinion on the OSHA vaccine mandate. Of course, that mandate went into effect at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time this morning, and there was interestingly, in oral argument, a little bit of separation of time and some clarification from what the Solicitor General for the government said uh, regarding what part of the mandate actually goes into effect and what is delayed actually until February 9th. So as of today, January 10th, what businesses are obligated to do under the mandate is to provide their uh, policy recommendations, how they're going to uh, actually implement the the mandate. They will have to ascertain the vaccine status of their employees and then start masking protocols. But the actual uh, vaccine mandate, making sure that all employees are vaccinated or tested, so the vaccine or testing criteria is the part that isn't actually implemented until February 9th. So because that came out in oral argument, some of uh, my legal colleagues are speculating that it could be that the Supreme Court is not quite as concerned about issuing a stay as immediately as uh, over the weekend, and they may wait until a little bit closer to that February deadline. Now, it's still problematic because uh, businesses, of course, are still having to put their protocols in place. They're still having to look at uh, how exactly they're going to comply or not with this mandate, and it's still pending the uncertain opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is putting all of not only our economy, our workforce, 
um, individuals who are having to consider, am I going to stay at my job? Am I going to uh, get the vaccine if I'm compelled to? Am I going to look for other work? They're thrown into chaos. I don't know their, um, their own opinion on that. They're having to make some decisions as well as the employers. And so if they're going uh, with HR down this track of figuring out exactly how they're going to implement this, they're putting in policies, et cetera, and then the Supreme Court comes out next week and says, well, hang on, we're putting a stay. This is why the predictability of law is so incredibly important, because initially OSHA came out with this mandate. Well, first, Joe Biden said they were going to have a mandate. Everybody speculated OSHA had absolutely no criteria at all. Um, So this was just guesswork. Uh, People should have waited at that point. Um, Some companies did. Others kind of jumped the gun and and went ahead and and tried to guess at some of the policies that they were going to implement. Then OSHA actually came out with the regulations. Then a federal court did issue a stay. Then the Sixth Circuit overturned it. Now we're at the Supreme Court. So this back and forth and back and forth is really providing a lot of legal uncertainty for Americans. So it was my hope that the Supreme Court would at least put in an administrative stay over the weekend while they were uh, fleshing out their fuller opinion if they didn't have one already prepared to go. Now, remember, this isn't something that the Supreme Court was newly contemplating or hearing for the first time in Oral Argument Friday. They had been fully briefed. There were many briefs. Uh, I talked to you on this program about the ACLJ briefs in particular, uh, but there were a lot of briefing as well as amicus briefs from all sides here. And they, of course, had their law clerks, as uh, Justice Breyer even said, working around the clock, researching and briefing this issue. So they could have had an opinion prepared to go, uh, but it's possible that the justices are still deliberating and maybe that fifth swing vote hasn't made up their mind, whoever that may be. So, So I was hopeful that there would at least be an administrative stay if there wasn't a solid decision from the court even going into oral argument or if somehow uh, the arguments persuaded one or two justices one way or the other. Um, So an administrative stay is exactly what it sounds like. It would have the court say, hey, we are going to keep the status quo. OSHA does not get to implement their mandate until we render our final opinion. And that doesn't mean that that we have any sort of um, foreknowledge of what that opinion may be. It's just everything is on hold until they issue their opinion. That would have been a really smart thing to do because then we're not in this back and forth chaos. And as companies are trying to implement this, we know that um, Citibank is already saying that they're going to fire uh, this month their employees who are unvaccinated, which makes up roughly 10 percent, they say, of their workforce. And uh, and Americans are having to consider what we're doing here while we are waiting for the U.S. Supreme Court. So I'm frankly very disappointed in them. This is one of the most important decisions that um, any sitting U.S. Supreme Court has ever heard because of how many Americans this impacts. Uh, a how important this constitutional question is and how important this is in terms of precedent to make sure that we are not only protecting the principle of separation of powers, of limited powers, but also making sure that we are protecting civil liberties in this country and the rights that we know that come from God, our creator, not our government. We heard that uh, very clearly during oral argument, who gets to decide? 
Well, it is not the federal government, and it certainly is not an unelected bureaucratic agency of the federal government. So I hope that even if it is tomorrow or later this week, the Supreme Court will issue that stay, and uh, they will say very clearly that uh, this is a violation of OSHA's uh, overbroad exercise of power. It's a violation of the Constitution, and uh, we'll go ahead and re-implement that stay now at least before February 9th. Um, so we've had a lot of legal commentators uh, talking about this, and I've been following um, you know, some of my friends, some of the, the other people, and certainly you know, Justice Sotomayor, who I wouldn't call a legal expert um, in, in this particular COVID uh context and narrative, which is really shocking. And, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but it's been interesting to see how she's just been utterly slammed over the weekend for the COVID misinformation. And on the Sunday shows, uh, the CDC director, uh, Dr. Walensky, even had to uh, to say, yes, the number of children who are hospitalized uh, with COVID is not over a hundred thousand, with uh, with a lot of them on ventilators, as Sotomayor uh, said as fact from the the bench. Um, the number she said was more like thirty five hundred, and uh, we know as well from the CDC that because children are tested immediately for COVID when they come to the hospital, then uh, for the vast majority of them. Uh, COVID wasn't the reason that they came to the hospital. They are just there for some other purpose and then test positive for COVID. So of that 3,500, you know, probably roughly 2,000 aren't even there just because their parents are concerned about COVID. Um, The one thing you shouldn't do, and we saw this over the weekend as well, is if you are considering that your child may test positive for COVID, not a good idea to quarantine them in the trunk of your car. Yeah, that actually happened. Uh, One parent who uh, is a public school teacher, apparently, so you'd think that they know better. I mean, good grief. But it apparently has to be said uh, that isolation and quarantining for kids, and uh, this kid was 13, apparently, uh, was driven by his mom to a uh, a testing site for COVID, tested positive, and she put him in her trunk to isolate and, of course, has now been charged um, with endangerment of a minor and, you know, probably a few other things. And it's utterly, utterly ridiculous. Um, so if if there's one thing that you can take away from this program, don't put kids in trunks. That should be um, kind of a, a given. But in this COVID hysteria landscape, uh, apparently... Some people need to hear that message. So this is why the Supreme Court needs to intervene right away. Um, So one of the other legal experts that I was listening to this week was my friend Alan Dershowitz, uh, who's who's very interesting to me as a personality. Um, I know him personally. I I worked with him, of course, uh, with President Trump on uh, the first impeachment hoax and he, of course, is a Democrat, so you have to always remember that he does come from that specific bias more of activism than of uh, of conserving the principles of the rule of law. Generally, I would say probably 95% of the time I agree with him, and I think he is one of the most reasonable Democrats, and that's why he goes on a lot of the more conservative uh, or Republican 
uh, biased networks uh, anymore because uh, he actually is focused on the Constitution most of the time. But sometimes his uh, Democrat opinion kind of still gets in the way. And so he was talking on Newsmax, where, full disclosure, of course, I'm the contributor as well. Um, he was talking on Newsmax this weekend about uh, his reaction to the mandates. And here's what he had to say. They can make all laws that may be necessary. The Constitution does not give the president the power to make laws. And this mandate either makes a law or it interprets the OSHA law very, very broadly. And I predicted in my book that the mandate would be upheld if it were enacted by Congress properly, with exceptions, but it might very well not be upheld if it was simply issued by the president. The executive authority, the president has the right to enforce the law, mm-hmm. not to make the law. Okay, so that was Alan Dershowitz, and he's saying that Congress has the authority under the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution for mandates. So he's partially correct, but I want to actually correct him here. Um, and of course, there is a debate on this. It's an open legal question because the federal government has not tried to impose uh, vaccine mandates before. But um, the necessary and proper clause of the Constitution has been so completely uh, just blown out of proportion that if you actually read the Constitution in context and you also read the Declaration, which provides the mandate for the Constitution and uh, says, of course, that our rights come from God, our creator, not our government, the sole purpose of government is to preserve and protect our rights, um, you see in the Constitution that the one principle um, beyond the separation of powers is of limited powers, limited and specifically enumerated powers to the federal government. So while Allen is correct that the the uh, Biden administration and the executive branch and a federal agency do not have the authority to implement this mandate, it would have to go through a legislative branch. We still have to ask the question, which legislative branch? And so um, there are some scholars who are saying that because of the necessary and proper clause and also the Commerce Clause uh, in the Constitution, then that would give Congress the prerogative and the authority under Article 1, Section 8, and then also the Necessary and Proper Clause uh, to then implement and legislate a vaccine mandate. I don't think that that is constitutionally accurate. If you look at um, he, and of course, he quotes Article 1, Section 1, which says all legislative authority is given to Congress. That's talking about the separation of powers on the federal level. But then when you actually look at Article 1, Section 8, those are the specific subject matters that Congress actually has legislative authority on. They can't just go and legislate anything that they think is necessary and proper to the good of America, to health and safety, to any sort of open question of whatever they think is necessary and proper according to their own uh, figment of their imagination. No, necessary and proper in this context, the necessary and proper clause means that Congress can effectuate legislation and pass laws that are necessary and proper according to the specific limited powers and subject matters that they've already been given in Article 1, Section 8. That's why the Ninth and Tenth Amendment 
also say that any specific limited powers that were not given to the federal government are reserved to the states or to the people. If Congress can legislate on anything they want, then what do we need the state legislators for? Do we only need state legislatures because there will be things, you know, within each state that uh, Congress isn't contemplating or isn't paying attention to? We would have the clash of ideas and clash of legislation and the supremacy clause would be invoked far too often if Congress could legislate for the entire country. If we look at not only the Federalist Papers, which I encourage everyone to read and look at the intent of what the founders actually provided for our framework and our system of government, we can see that the framers specifically intended very, very limited powers to the federal government. So I think that Dershowitz is wrong on this one. And to say that this is a legislative issue, yes, but to say that this is a congressional issue and especially invoking the necessary and proper clause, I think that's an overbroad reading of that particular clause and doesn't take it in context of the rest of the Constitution. And that's the problem with a lot of of, uh, people and especially Supreme Court opinions that only look to clauses of the Constitution rather than reading it as a whole. Because if you start parsing out one word and phrase, that's called proof texting. And then you build an entire doctrine, a legal doctrine, or in the context, some pastors do this uh, with scripture. They'll take one verse of scripture totally out of context and build an entire doctrine around it. And it ends up their doctrine of what they profess that the verse or few words, uh, one clause, one phrase of a verse is saying is completely isolated and uh, and absolutely misconstrued and is uh, misrepresented in the doctrine than what it actually says in the text. You have to take into context the verses that come before, that come after, the words that come before, that come after that particular phrase. You have to look at it in context. Where is that verse in the entirety of scripture? Is it in uh, is it in a historical book? Is it in uh, Proverbs you know, versus the Psalms? Is it in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? There are a lot of different methods and ways that we can look to pinpointing the accuracy of interpretation of scripture or of written words when we have the entire context. And there are principles of originalist interpretation that apply to any written document. And it, the same goes for the U.S. Constitution as well, or any written document, that you have to look at the context. You have to look at the authorial or the author's intent. You can't just parse out one word or phrase like necessary and proper and have this overbroad interpretation and couple that just with, well, all legislative powers given to Congress, they can do whatever they feel is necessary and proper. So, okay, vaccine mandates can go through Congress. That is an overbroad and misinterpretation of the Constitution, and it leaves out specifically the principle of limited power given to the federal government and limits on congressional authority to legislate on subject matters that Congress has not been given in Article 1, Section 8. The only way that you can get to Congress versus the states mandating or passing legislation as the states on the executive branch can't either go back. So um, so the only way that you can get to Congress instead of the states legislating vaccine mandates, because remember, the even on the state level, the executive branch cannot uh, mandate this would have to go through legislatively. The only way that you can get to Congress legislating over the states is if there is some argument that there is specific limited authority 
in Article 1, Section 8. And this is why the Commerce Clause has been so abused and stretched beyond bounds, because anything that Congress has wanted to do, because they can control interstate uh, commerce between the states, then they've said, well, anything that it affects more than one state, basically, we can regulate through Congress. That clause, in its original context, simply meant packing and shipping. Literally, the boxes and the packing material that go from goods being delivered to the states. Uh, the founders did not want border wars. They didn't want tariffs being imposed uh, between and among states. They didn't want states uh, compacting with each other and then uh, imposing tariffs on a neighbor state that they didn't like and having all all these kinds of um, interstate wars, in um, maybe even physically, but also economically. Um, so the Commerce Clause meant that Congress could set a uniform standard so that states couldn't abuse each other. That doesn't mean that Congress has the authority to abuse the states. So Alan, I think, on this one um, is, is wrong, and we have to go back always to the original text of the Constitution, understand the principles upon which our government was founded, and understand the author's intent and the textual intent of the language as a whole. And by the way, if you haven't read uh, my book, I actually published a book called The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution. And I go through in uh, one of the chapters, I think it's chapter five, of all of the principles of originalism and constitutional interpretation. So if you're interested in learning more about that, I would encourage you um, to, to go and read my book and um, learn more about the Constitution in context. The reason that I wrote this book is to give um, any American who is uh, really interested in learning about the true context of our Constitution, uh, why we are conservatives, how to read and apply the Constitution, um, this book gives you all of that. So it's not geared toward just lawyers. It's uh, for anyone who is interested in learning more about the Constitution. So you can get that, um, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere books are sold. It's called The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution. And I know that's a little bit long of a title. Um, it was my first book, so I didn't really know, know what I was doing in terms of naming books. And so um, that, to me, described my intent for writing the book was to provide um, the legal rationale or the legal basis for why we understand that the Constitution is a moral document and does actually comment on morality and uh, does limit our government. Before we transition topics to Congress and, of course, uh, one of the more sad stories over the weekend Let's talk about my pillow because towels just don't seem to dry you anymore. They are soft and lotiony in the stores, but you get home and they just don't absorb. Well, Mike Lindell at my pillow found that around 2006, towels changed forever. They started importing them and adding softeners and other things to the cotton that made them feel good, but they just didn't work. He found the best towel company right here in the USA. They have proprietary technology to create towels that feel soft but actually work. They are all made within the USA with USA cotton and they come with the MyPillow 60-day money-back guarantee. So as you are stocking up and doing your shopping for the new year, there is a six-piece set, which I have in the sage green. It's absolutely beautiful. Two bath, two hand towels, and two washcloths, regularly $109.99, now only $39.99, but you have to use the promo code Jenna. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the new radio listener special and get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including 
including the towels. Enter promo code Jenna or call 1-800-564-8475 for the great radio specials. And they also have the My Slippers, which I am wearing right now. I know we're transitioning to video very soon. That should be early next week. Uh, but for the meantime, while we're still audio... I'm definitely in my slippers. You know what? I might even wear them when we're on video because they're just so warm and fuzzy and it has been snowing basically everywhere in the country besides Florida. And these always keep me so warm. I absolutely love them. So go to MyPillow.com and enter the promo code Jenna to save on all of the MyPillow products, including the towels, including the slippers and so much more. Okay, so uh, yesterday, it was really sad, I'm sure you've seen this headline, that uh, Hollywood actor and comedian Bob Saget has died unexpectedly. And if you are an 80s kid like me, you grew up, uh, you know, watching um, Full House and America's Funniest Home Videos, uh, Bob Saget, of course, was a mainstay in uh, most American homes, as uh, and they've been calling him America's dad, you know, which has been kind of a great moniker. And um, a couple of things, as I was going through, you know, Twitter uh, late yesterday and just looking at kind of this outpouring of of people who have um, said very kind things about him, and of course, they're uh, shocked that he so suddenly passed. He was only 65. He was um, apparently on the first stop of his comedy tour, which was supposed to extend um, through like May or June of this year. And um, so it was it was very unexpected. And um, a couple of things. Um, first, I read an article from our friends at Not The Bee, which um, this is, of course, the news version of um, the actual satire site, uh, the Babylon Bee, which I love as well. And we've had Seth Dillon, uh, the CEO, on this show. And um, this is by one of their reporters, Peter Heck. And it's titled, A Word About Bob Saget and the Topic We Try to Ignore. So I just want to read this to you really quick because it had a very, really, really good message um, and echoed a lot of my same thoughts, um, actually, as I was um, as I was scrolling through all of these comments on Twitter. So Peter Heck writes, I was still reeling in the superficial and insignificant frustrations of a colossal choke job by my perennially disappointed Indianapolis Colts. I didn't do that. Um, Jenna speaking, that's that's just totally a guy thing. But he goes on to say, when the news dropped that the well-known Hollywood actor and comedian Bob Saget had died unexpectedly. Like many in my generation, I was raised with a Saget, with Saget, a mainstay on my childhood television screen, first as the annoying goofball Danny Tanner of Full House, and then as the cheesy host of America's Funniest Home Videos. And though I always blamed Saget for choosing the three least funniest videos as finalists each week, America's Funniest Home Videos had become a Sunday evening staple in my house and millions of others. As I write this, no cause of death has yet been announced, nothing other than the shocking announcement that the 65-year-old Saget had been found dead in his Orlando hotel room by staff and that detectives found no signs of foul play or drug use in this case. The tributes poured in from colleagues and co-stars, and he goes and he lists a few of those. And he says, two weeks ago, actress and comedian Betty White died at the age of 99, drawing condolences and celebrations of a long, productive life. The responses to Saget's passing have been, quite logically, filled with more devastation, shock, and grief. But the actor's own Twitter feed, it was the actor's own Twitter feed that provided perhaps the most jarring quality to the news. This is what Bob Saget tweeted. 
Love tonight's show at PV Concert Hall in Jacksonville. Appreciate, appreciative audience. Thanks again to at Real Tim Wilkins for opening. I had no idea I did a two-hour set tonight. I'm happily addicted to this. Check bobsaget.com for my dates in 2022. And he posts a selfie of him on stage with his guitar and a bench in the background. So this was at uh, 3.42 a.m. on January 9th. And Peter Heck goes on to say, Saget sent that tweet at 3.42 a.m., a discomforting proof that he had no idea he had less than 12 hours to live. One of the most remarkable things about humanity continues to be our willingness to make plans and preparations for anything and everything, even though there's absolutely no guarantee we will ever live to see them. We plan for our retirement without any guarantee we'll ever live to see it. We plan for our kids' weddings without any guarantee they'll even find someone to marry them. We plan to buy our vacation home or RV without any guarantee we'll be physically capable or around to enjoy them. And here was Saget tweeting about and making preparations for a full comedy tour he would never ultimately conduct. There's nothing wrong with making plans and looking forward to things in this life, obviously. It would be a miserable existence to just sit and wait for death to arrive or to live constantly obsessed over when or how it will happen. But there is something dreadfully wrong with our tendency to ignore the one thing in life we are guaranteed. People say death and taxes, but surely we're all smart enough to know that there are plenty of people who find ways to avoid the latter, taxes. But the former? Death has a flawless track record in its competition with humanity. Save that one man from Nazareth, of course. Wouldn't it be wise of us, in the course of making our own plans for the future, to spend a bit of time making plans for our eternal future? I don't know if Bob Saget did that. I can speculate like anyone else based on the fruits of his life, but ultimately that is a futile and unrewarding exercise. His window of time to prepare for the hereafter has closed. If you're reading this, or listening to this podcast, yours hasn't. So by all means, enjoy each breath, savor each moment, forgive and love, live and laugh life to its fullest. But the one who owns us all reminds us deliberately that it is appointed unto all men once to die. That could be when, we're pushing, when we are pushing this century mark like Betty White, or it could be moments after we've tweeted out our exciting plans for the coming week's comedy shows. Fear God, follow Jesus, live with the Spirit's guidance, and you'll be ready for whenever that is. This was the best article, in my opinion, on Bob Saget because Peter Heck was willing to point out one of the things that we do constantly avoid, which is uh, talking about the fact that it is appointed unto man once to die. The Bible guarantees us of that certainty, and life in our experience and our knowledge of life uh, guarantees that certainty. This is why so many of the leftists uh, fear COVID, because they don't have preparations for eternal life, and the best that it's going to get is here in this life. And so even though we can uh, absolutely and should push back against all of these mandates and uh, petty tyranny and uh, and all of the things that um, is so wrong with our government currently, we always have to ask ourselves the question, um, why is the average individual and the secular uh, general populace not pushing back against some of these mandates? Well, I really think it's because they believe that the vaccine will save them because they have to believe that, because they are so scared 
of death and of an unknown future that they are willing to go into blind, uh, just coerced mentality and willful blindness because they cannot live with themselves if they truly think that death is imminent. And one of the things in our current modern society that we've actually been so privileged uh, to have is to not have death be as close to us as uh, it was in other cultures. Um, You know, even just looking at some of the um, historical fiction or some of the um, you know historical documentaries of the lifestyles that we've seen over um, world history. You know, if you lived during the Middle Ages and you lived during uh, the Black Plague, if you lived even during you know some of the the conquests of uh, the European countries, and um, you know whether you were a peasant or a king or um, in the in uh, a soldier in a war, I mean, death was imminent, and you knew that you could die at any moment. And so in some sense, an understanding of God was vastly more important to the day-to-day life of an individual than it has become in our modern society. And so it's only when we are faced with our own mortality and we're faced with stories like this one where a a 65-year-old otherwise you know, unbeknownst to us, I mean, otherwise seemingly healthy individual who was on a comedy tour um, is just found dead in, in their hotel room. It makes us face that question of what are our eternal plans? Now, we all have had our New Year's resolutions. I hope 10 days into it, you're still keeping yours and you're still focused on uh, what you can do for God this year and to have those plans. And we should be making plans because every day is a gift and every day that we are still here on earth means that our work for God is not completed yet. But we all have to face that question of, what happens when my time comes? What happens to my preparations for eternity? Have I prepared for eternity? And this is why as uh, Pastor John MacArthur, who of course you all know um, I represented throughout last year uh, with the church closure issues, this is why he stood up so firmly and said the church has to open because the church is all about answering those questions. What about eternity? And settling our accounts Uh, before we meet our maker and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, hopefully your Lord and Savior face to face, because every single person will face God at some point in their life. And that will either be as Lord or that will be as as, uh, the judge and as the judge who will make you give an account and no person can give an account for their sins, no matter how much you've done good in this life, how many New Year's resolutions you've kept, that isn't good enough to ever, ever merit salvation that can only come through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ and in our repentance of sin and accepting him as Savior. So as we are looking forward to 2022, make plans, make resolutions, but as Peter Huck so wisely and astutely and willingly pointed out, we also need to discuss that topic that the left absolutely doesn't want to. They do not want to believe that uh, COVID could impact them, that ultimately what COVID represents to them is death. And they don't want to face death because they don't want to face 
the God that they have rejected. But it is not too late for anyone who is still living and breathing and who is still searching. It is not too late to come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that is ultimately what all of this is for. Our interest in and our um, our fighting for this country, this nation, for everything that we're doing. It's so that we can help lead as many people into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as we possibly can before the Lord returns or until he calls us individually home. And we need to be faithful to fulfill that great commission and use uh, stories like this to always at the forefront ask ourselves uh, if we haven't answered that question yet, are we preparing for eternity? Or if you have, and you are a Christian, and you have accepted the free gift of salvation, and you have assurance in your salvation, then you need to be asking that of everyone around you, um, your family, your friends, and your loved ones. Are you prepared for eternity? Because you never know what tomorrow will bring. Well, um, if tomorrow is still here and I am still here and have not been called home by my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I will be with you and we will plan for a great 2022, always knowing that it could be at any moment that the Lord decides to return. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.